Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, Today is Sunday, uh, February the 4th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. This episode uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report that will have dispatches on the recent death of Republic of Namibia President Hodge Gengab. The vice president has been sworn in as the interim leader in the Republic of Namibia. In East Africa, uh, there are states that are facing the potential for rising food prices, And the president of Kenya, William Ruto, says that corruption underlines the recent explosion at a fuel depot in Nairobi. In the second hour, we look in detail at the transition in Namibia. Finally, we review developments in Gaza and around the region. These and other stories will be brought to you uh, and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with Cesario Evora uh, from the Cape Verde Islands. Let's listen in.
Essa vive de 
cariñosa, mãe, mãe cariñosa. Ó terra, mãe, a emoção e do filho pródigo, que já volta cheio da ansiedade, favor, caminho. Ó terra, mãe, a emoção e do filho pródigo, que já volta cheio da ansiedade, favor, ternura. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. De sol cascontes, bem constantes, choma igual. Boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa. Boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa. Você está a dar um leite que é tão doce e morninho. Nota sentido ternura, na nos pele morena. Nota sentido ternura. Danos pel morena, é por isso que esse nosso amor é assim tão grande que mesmo na distância nunca te esquecer. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo. Já volta cheio da ansiedade, favor, calém. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo. Que já volta cheio da ansiedade, favor, ternura. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Nunca te aflar ninguém 
más linda al oído que esas dos palabras que dicen te quiero. Cambio todas las cosas bonitas porque me repitas te quiero, te quiero. Los poetas hablen de mil cosas, de noches azules, de estrellas y rosas. Pero yo en vez de eso prefiero que me des un beso y me digas te quiero. Todas las palabras del mundo, esas dos palabras son mis preferidas. Ya que sé el corazón que me quieres, yo quiero y siempre que tú me las digas. Y en el mundo hay tantas tentaciones, y para gozarlas no hay como el dinero. Pero yo me ves de eso, prefiero que me des un beso y me digas te quiero. Pasarme la vida, todita la vida, de noche y de día, escuchando tu boca bonita, decirme cerquita que siempre eres mía. No hay quien no le agrada la idea de ser presidente, don Juan Torero, pero yo me vez de eso prefiero que me des un beso y me digas te quiero. Des un beso y me digas te quiero. Que me des un beso y me digas te quiero. Gotita espera, hoy am nacido. Babo pensa nada en valor, tal vez está cerca de crecer. Babo reconoces mi amor, vida un lar de incomprensión, por condenarme a esta relación. Cuando tiver más remisión, tal ser un mar lamentación. Suavita espera hoy a nacer, babo pensa nada en valor, tal vez está cerca de crecer. Babo reconoces mi amor. Vida un lar de incompresión, o condename a relación. Con casi ver más la misión, está ser humano la mensación. Pa' que viven en escudida, tras día y vida. Con fidra y ciencia vida, con gemba pesando a vos. Tu sale por de carne de cuar, para que vivan escogidas, las días que hay vida, con vida y esencia vida, con quien va preso anda vos, tu sale por de carne de cuar. Vive un día cada vez, días mañana va a ser tal vez. 
surcat com pensat pecador és tan amor nos criador lo abandonam na solidão vou condenam pra frustração quando que te fermas na missão da ser uma lamentação vive um dia cada vez e as manhãs pode ser talvez surcat com pensat pecador és tan amor nos criador Vou abandonar na solidão, vou condenar para frustração. Quando que tiver mais na missão, está a ser uma lamentação. Para que viver nessa corrida, traz dia aqui a vida. Considera a essência de vida, quando em bafes manda voz. Ganha benta passa mal, cansa ma quem tá ganha bom, tá ganha benta passa mal, cansa ma quem tá ganha bom, quem te hoje não esquece, nunca pode admitir mais, paciência para quem se critica, lamento que até só que não te chás, quem te hoje não esquece, nunca pode admitir mais, paciência para quem se critica, lamento que até só que não te chás, não fazer nós conjuntos. 
Para no poder dar muito que falar Quem tá ganha bem tá passa mal Canta mas quem tá ganha pô Quem tá ganha bem tá passa mal Canta mas quem tá ganha pô Nunca pode admitir mais Paciência para quem te critica Na mesca tem foco no chão Quem te ouve não esquece Nunca pode admitir mais Paciência para quem te critica Na mesca tem foco no chão Não fazer nós conjuntos Para não poder dar muito que falar Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Não fazer nós conjuntos para não poder dar muito que falar Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar bom Quem está a ganhar bem está a passar mal Canta, mas quem está a ganhar
prisperida, Juninha vai botar busneira do Enguenta a boca nela, Juninha tava viçosa, vou botar na mana pausa, vou grogui, vou violão, é um prazer, vou ter na vida. Que adianta chorar prisperida, Juninha vai botar busneira do Enguenta a boca nela, Juninha tava viçosa, vou botar na mana pausa. Bogrogi
cada gota é uma esperança, amor e paz na coração, de beleza, de natureza, da tornar um jardim de amor, nós tristeza da acabar, alegria da voltar, a água da correr na quebrada. Para isso um crete, um jardim de amor, ai, pão e meu. Nós tristeza da acabar, alegria da voltar, água da correr naquele beira. Um paraíso, um crete, um jardim de amor, ai, pão e meu. Nós tristeza da acabar, alegria da voltar, água da correr naquele pena. Um paraíso, um cliché, um jardim de amor.
es país que no planta una medidor y miseria y en armonía de nos cultura de ver la vente sota bien un fresca brisa de paz No pega nos viola, no se no serenata. Y na dulzura do mi menor, na quintura do sol maior, no canta nos sentimentos que nos traga. Es maravilla de natureza. Esvaiot na mei de mar, nos corações. Esse sentimento não tem na peito. Esse pensamento que te mostrou, não te aflorei esse jardim. Que escante para cada flor que nasce é um café de da crescer cano por mim esmarcere e cristalino na pulsar de sejonda da unir nos corações cano Que na pulsar de sejonda Está unido nos Florir esse jardim 
que estante a cada flor que nasceu é um cabo verde da crescer já não podia esse mar sereno e cristalino que na pulsar de seus ondas se unir nosso coração já não Pulsar de seis ondas Da unir Nosso coração Cheio de alegria, sorriso quem mora beija na fé, Nina Sonsen, cá tem tristeza, tudo é paródia, fantasia e folia. Junta a nós, vem passar, vem conviver, viver e ida viver, pra festejar, não catagaguejar. Tu está minha Brinca desde la manhã Junta a nós Vem passar Vem conviver Viver e reviver Na festejar Não canta gaguejar Nós tu está minha Brinca desde la manhã Para carnaval São Silvestre e São João Vou para brincar Cheio de alegria Tradição, tá vivido para todos nós. Na passação, nós é campeão. Para carnaval, São Silvestre e São João. Povo para brincar, cheio de alegria. Nós tradição, tá vivido para todos nós. Na passação, nós é campeão. Cheio de alegria, sorriso quem mora benta na pé, Lina São Sem, cá tem tristeza, tudo é paródia, fantasia e folia. Junta a nós, vem passar, vem conviver, viver e reviver, para festejar, não gata gaguejar. Nós todos alinhados, brincadeiros pela manhã Para carnaval, São Silvestre e São João Povo está a brincar, cheio de alegria Nós tradição, está vivido para todo lado Na passação, nós é campeão Para carnaval, São Silvestre e São João Povo está a brincar, cheio de alegria Nossa tradição, tá vivido para todo lado. 
Na faça só, nós é campeão 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 Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the music of Cesaria Ivor uh, from the West African uh, Cape Verde Islands. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, February 4th, uh, 2024. Uh, We're broadcasting uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the situation in Palestine. Sources have told Al-Mahadeen Television Network uh, that the Palestinian resistance has received a ceasefire proposal that does not go with its vision for ending the war and would enable Israel to continue its hostilities. Negotiations are taking place over a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and a complete withdrawal of the Israeli occupation forces. That's what the sources have told al-Mahadeen earlier today. The stipulations of the agreement uh, being drawn up include the issues of the ceasefire, withdrawal, prisoner exchange, uh, reconstruction, displaced persons, the entry of aid, and the lifting of the siege imposed upon the Gaza Strip. Intelligence obtained by al-Mahadeen indicates that the Paris Agreement touched on the prisoner exchange but completely neglected the ceasefire and the withdrawal from Gaza, whereas the resistance agreement highlights those issues as being pivotal. There's no clause confirming a ceasefire after the truce ends, and there are no regional or international guarantees that the Israeli occupation would not resume hostilities after it. There also are not uh, enough details regarding the essential issues of the resistance and Gaza in and of itself, the sources said. The Paris Agreement also offered no guarantees about an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza as Israeli officials claim that they want to establish a buffer zone within the blockaded strip. Quote, the resistance is concerned that Israel intends to remain in Gaza and complicate the reconstruction efforts in a bid to drive a wedge between the people of Gaza and the resistance, uh, one source told al-Mahadeen. Additionally, uh, there are apparently no solid grounds for the reconstruction effort, nor the provision of temporary housing for displaced peoples, amid the concerns that the Israeli occupation might seek to impede said efforts. Quote, Hamas is engaging in consultations with Palestinian factions and its allies from parties and regional forces, unquote, the sources said, revealing that the agreement was brought up for discussion within the movement's upper echelons. It was revealed to al-Mahadeen that there will be a meeting in Cairo, Egypt, within days, which would be attended uh, by representatives from several other countries, including uh, Qatar. And in other news, uh, sadly, Namibia's president, uh, Hajj Gingab, passed away in Venhoek uh, Hospital earlier today at the age of 82. According to a statement uh, from the presidential office, uh, Gengab, in his second term as president, had disclosed last month that he was undergoing treatment for cancer. 
Quote, it is with utmost sadness and regret that I inform you that our beloved Dr. Hodge G. Gengab, the president of the Republic of Namibia, has passed earlier today. I read the statement on the site uh, known as X, formerly known as Twitter, signed by acting president Nangolo Mbumba. Quote, at his side was his dear wife, Madame Monica Gengos, and his children, unquote. A biopsy conducted after a regular medical uh, examination in January had detected cancerous cells, as announced uh, by Gengob's office. Initially elected as president in 2014, Gengob held the position of Namibia's longest-serving prime minister and third president. In 2013, he underwent brain surgery, and in the previous year, he had a aortic operation in neighboring South Africa. Until his passing, Gengab had been undergoing treatment at Lady Bohamba Hospital in Venhook. The Namibian nation has lost a distinguished servant of the people, a liberation struggle icon, the chief architect of our constitution, and the pillar of the Namibian house, said Mbumba. At this moment of deepest sorrow, I appeal to the nation to remain calm and collected while the government attends to all necessary state arrangements, preparations, and other protocols. And we'll have uh, more information uh, on uh, the situation in Namibia in light of the passing of uh, President Haji Gengab. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. In other news, Ukraine and Russia produce almost one-third of the world's wheat and barley and half of the world's sunflower oil. According to East Africa Business Council, the economic impact of the Middle East conflict to the region is going to be substantial. Djibouti and Somalia rely exclusively on imports to meet their domestic wheat demand, while a sizable portion of wheat demand in Kenya, 86%, and the Republic of Sudan, 77%, is met by imports. East African countries are starting staring at a fresh rise uh, in food and fuel prices due to the escalating conflict in uh, the Middle East, uh, which continues to disrupt the flow of goods through the Red Sea. The ongoing war between Israel and the Hamas-led Palestinian militant group in Gaza have intensified insecurity in the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean line between Africa and Asia. This is forcing ships to seek alternative but longer and expensive routes away from the Suez Canal. A 193.30-kilometer water canal in Egypt that connects the Mediterranean uh, to the Red Sea. Last year, the Suez Canal Authority announced that it would raise the transit fees for ships passing the canal by 5% to 15% as of January the 15th. According to a regional business lobby, East African Business Council, the economic impact of the Middle East conflict to the region is going to be substantial. And uh, finally, uh, in the East African uh, state of Kenya, uh, in the aftermath of a huge explosion uh, at a oil uh, installation, Kenyan president says corruption and officials' incompetence allowed a liquid petroleum plant to operate in one of Nairobi's most crowded residential neighborhoods where its explosion and fire killed three people and injured more than 280 others. <clears throat> President William Ruto said the officials who gave licenses to the plant 
must be dismissed and prosecuted. Police are also looking for the site's owners. At least 24 people were critically injured when the huge fireball erupted from the gas depot late on Thursday and spread rapidly in Kenya's capital, burning homes and warehouses. Some gas cylinders were thrown hundreds of meters yards, sparking separate fires. Although at the time of the fire, the site was operating illegally. Ruto said some licenses had been issued for the gas plant to operate in a residential area. Quote, it was very clear that it was the wrong thing to do, but because of incompetence, corruption, they issued licenses, unquote, Ruto told a gathering in the western Kenyan town of Lugari. He went on to say that today we have injuries, we have Kenyans who have died. Those uh, fellows who are involved in this, the ministry must immediately take action on them, and they must be dismissed and prosecuted for the crimes they have committed. Uh, the president said the National Environment Management Authority Board said in a statement it has suspended four officials, including the director of environmental compliance. The chairman of the board, Emilio Mugo, asked police to investigate the four. Nairobi police boss Adamson Bungay said they are also looking for the owners of the yard. We are pursuing them for questioning, he said. The depot in Nairobi's Mbakasi neighborhood had twice been demolished, and the owner had been found guilty of operating an illegal gas refilling business in May, but continued to do, do business, officials said uh, on Friday. That raised suspicions in a country uh, where corruption is endemic, that bribes were paid to ignore the operation. Kenya is considered among the world's most corrupt countries, ranking 126 out of 180 nations by Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index of 2023. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can see burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, February 4th, uh, 2024, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. How do you live with broken heart and only a memory? I said we I know what's in store for me. Hurt a little everything. 
Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Sunday, February 4th, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, right now we want to follow up on the story, uh, breaking news about the death uh, earlier today of Republic of Namibia President Hodge Gengar. Uh, he died at a hospital in Venhoek, the capital of the Republic of Namibia. He has, uh, of course, uh, contributed immensely uh, to the national liberation struggle Uh, in Namibia and Southern Africa, indeed, uh, throughout the entire African continent. Uh, Let's listen uh, to this segment on the swearing-in of uh, the interim president uh, in the aftermath of the transition of President Gengarb. Welcome back. Well, following the passing of Namibian President Haige Gengarb, a new leader has to be installed to take over the reins as well as ensure stability as well as a smooth transition of power for the Namibian people. And for more on this, we have on the line SABC News International Editor Sophie Mogwena. Sophie, a very good evening to you. So talk to us about the process of swearing in a new leader in such cases where sitting president passes on, particularly in that country in Namibia. So clearly they did follow the constitution as it has been outlined in that important document, that's a guiding document for the country. And uh, 
to avoid a vacuum. This afternoon, uh, the former Vice President, Nangwelo Mbumba, was sworn in as the President of Namibia. And that led to the uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, Netumbu Nandi Ndaitwa, to then take over the position of being a vice president. And the reason being, you'd recall that the party has nominated uh, Netumbu Nandi Ndaitwa to be their candidate for elections, as you know that Namibia will be going to elections this year. Mm -hmm. And therefore they have been able to manage the transition. And it's not uh, the first time you'd recall their founding father uh, when he left the president that came in, it was a smooth transition. Even now, under this eventuality, Namibia has been able to handle the transition as it is supposed to be handled. And therefore, that spoke to today when you look at what happened earlier on, that spoke to how the democracy has matured in Namibia and how the institutions are able to hold any shocks in terms of whatever happens in the country. So all the institutions were available to ensure that there was this smooth transition. And therefore, Namibia has got the new president, Nangolo Mbumba. Mm. And Sophie, so you're basically saying uh, the former vice president is now the president until, of course, uh, such time that Namibia goes to the polls. So how does this then in total affect the current cabinet? There will be changes here and there because as the new president, he is going to look at who uh, can come in to strengthen cabinet. And I think uh, that will be in consultation with the vice president who will be the advisor of the president because uh, this is the person, if Swapo is able to win elections, will become a president of Namibia or the president of Namibia. And that will be history because this will be the first time a woman in Namibia is a head of state. And mm -hmm. therefore, I think uh, as a liberation organization, Swapa has been able to demonstrate that uh, it doesn't mean a liberation organization can't handle issues of succession, but that can be done by any liberation organization that has got a better plan in terms of succession. And mm -hmm. also, uh, much as there's always tension in any political party, be the opposition, be the governing party, but you have to manage those tensions so that when you experience uh, challenges such as this one, you are able to manage uh, the transition and mm. you have a support of members of that particular party. Mm. And in closing, Sophie, very quickly, any information at this stage regarding the funeral arrangements? Uh, they haven't announced the funeral yet, and including the elections, but uh, uh, I spoke to people who are in Namibia. Some are saying elections will still continue this year, but I'm not so sure about the date. Therefore, it looks like Namibia is clear in terms of uh, how it has to move forward, and they are not going to be disrupted by the current uh, eventuality, the passing on of uh, President Hagen All right, thank you for that. That is SABC International editor on the passing of Namibian President Hagen as well as the new leadership that has since been installed.
That was a report uh, from uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation uh, on the passing earlier today of uh, fraternal uh, nation uh, president, uh, the Republic of Namibia president, uh, Hodge Gengab, uh, at a Venhook uh, hospital at the age of 82. Uh, here's a, another uh, audio file from inside of Namibia itself uh, featuring officials uh, formally announcing the passing of the president and also the uh, turning over uh, of the guard uh, to other Kwapo officials who are in the Namibian government. We gather this afternoon with heavy hearts but with a shared commitment to uphold the democratic principles of our beloved country. In terms of Article 29 of the Namibian Constitution that provides for incidences where the President is unable to perform his duties through either resignation, death, or is removed from office in accordance with the Namibian Constitution, the vacant position of President will be filled as follows. If the vacancy occurs less than one year before the scheduled presidential election, the vacancy will be filled as per Article 34. If the vacancy occurs more than one year before the scheduled presidential election, an election for the president will be held within 90 days from the date of the vacancy as per Article Articles 28 and 34. Therefore, in the wake of the untimely departure of our beloved President, His Excellency Dr. Hageji Genkop, a vacancy has therefore occurred which must be filled to ensure the uninterrupted functioning of the state. It is therefore against this background that I welcome you all to witness the solemn swearing in ceremony of our President and the Vice President who steps into the responsibilities left by the untimely passing of our President. Ladies and gentlemen, may we find strength in continuity and shared commitment to the values that define our nation. Let us hold hands in unity, resilience, and dedication to guiding our nation through this challenging time. Together we honor the legacy of our departed leader and president and forge on the path of progress. Thank you, and we God bless you all. Without further ado, I will call upon the Judge President. To administer the swearing in of the President. Thank you. Call up, my call upon 
Mr. Excellency, the Vice President, please step forward, please. after me. I, I, Nangolo Mbumba, do hereby swear, do hereby swear, that I'll be, I'll strive to the best of my ability to uphold, that I will strive to the best of my ability to uphold, protect and defend, protect and defend, as the supreme law, the constitution of the Republic of Namibia. As the supreme law of the Constitution of the Republic of Namibia, and faithfully to obey, and faithfully obey, execute, execute, and administer the laws of the Republic of Namibia, and administer the laws of the Republic of Namibia, that I will protect the independence, that I will protect the independence, sovereignty, sovereignty, territorial integrity, territorial integrity, and the material and spiritual resources of the Republic of Namibia, and the material and spiritual resources of the Republic of Namibia, and that I will endeavor to the best of my ability, and I will never endeavor, to, and I will endeavor to the best of my ability to, to ensure justice for all the inhabitants of the Republic of Namibia. To ensure justice for all inhabitants of the Republic of Namibia. Please raise your right hand and say, so help me God. So help me God. upon His Excellency the President Nangolombumba to make a short statement of acceptance.
Minister in the Presidency, Christine Orpes. Your Excellency Dr. Hifike Punye Bohamba, former President of the Republic of Namibia, Right Honorable Prime Minister Dr. Sara Kugangewa Madira, Deputy Prime Minister Dr. Netumbo Nandin Daidua, our Speaker of the National Assembly, Professor Peter Hichavi Kachavivi, our Chief Justice Shivute, Chairperson of the National Council, Muha, Honorable Ministers and Deputy Ministers, our Service Chiefs, Distinguished Invited Guests, Members of the Media, Fellow Namibians. I accept with humility the noble assignment bestowed upon me that of appointment as President of the Republic of Namibia. In accordance with Article 29, read together with Article 34 of the Namibian Constitution, I take I take on this heavy mantle, cognizant of the weight of this responsibility, to serve all people of Namibia with utmost dedication and commitment in the service of all citizens of the Namibian House in the land of the brave. I undertake to continue building on the excellent foundation established by our founding father, His Excellency Dr. Sam Shafishuna Nuyoma, as well as the former president, His Excellency Dr. Hifike Punye Pohamba, and our beloved, now belated, President Dr. Hage Gottfried Geinkop. May his soul rest in peace. May we please rise and observe a minute of silence. Attention. Thank you very much. Let us take our places. It is poignant and reassuring to note that today, even in this time of heavy loss, our nation remains calm and stable. This is owing to the visionary leadership and foresight of President Gaingop, who was the chief architect of the Namibian Constitution and the champion of our governance architecture based on sound processes, systems, and institutions that are guiding us today. 
fellow Namibians, as I assume the office of the president, a vacancy is created in the office of the vice president. After due consultation, I have the pleasure and honor to announce the appointment of the Honorable Netumbo Nandin Daitwa as Vice President of the Republic of Namibia with immediate effect. During this difficult period of mourning, I urge all Namibians to remain united and to keep the bereaved family, the bereaved Gaingop family and clan in our prayers. If I were to say why I am sad, if I to say all those I owe to have reached this stage, it will be a long, long speech. But today is not a day of speeches. Comrade Isike Punye Pohamba, the leader of Swapo I first met in exile at Kazungula, Botswana, in February or March 1966. I am so honored and feel blessed that you are here this afternoon, despite other limitations. I also remember at one time when you left office and there was a vacancy, no, there was no vacancy. You just did not want to continue be, be the Chancellor of the University of Namibia. And it was you and Dr. Gaingop who ended up giving me the job. So this is the second time I am in your footstep. Thank you so much. Also, if I were to sell, say all the things I could remember, how I met Haji Gottfried Gangop in New York in 1967. Yeah, 1967. He was already a leader of the student. He was already a representative there. When we came to Namibia, I was working in his office. There was always a crisis when I was sent to office day. Then I came back, I became a minister. A child from Urukonda who never thought about anything. My aim was to be a school principal, which I achieved. And now, I have to thank the Namibian people for the honor they have bestowed on me to be their president for a short period of time. I'm not going to be around for the elections, so don't panic. You are telling yourself already stories. I will be serving you for the remainder 
of Dr. Gaingop's term of office. We understand one another, let us support one another. In conclusion, long live the Republic of Namibia, long live the people of Namibia, may God protect us all. Thank you very much. Now, Honorable Netumbo Nandindaitwa, get your letter of appointment and then the judge, the Chief Justice will do what he came here to do. very much, Your Excellency, Dr. Nangulombumba, President of the Republic of Namibia. Now I will invite the Chief Justice once again to administer the oath of office and to the Vice President is appointed just now, Her Excellency, Tumbo Nandin Deidua, Vice President. Republic of Namibia. Chief Do hereby swear that I will strive to the best of my ability to uphold that I will strive to the best of my ability to uphold protect and defend as the supreme law protect and defend as the supreme law the constitution of the Republic of Namibia the constitution of the Republic of Namibia and faithfully to obey and faithfully to obey execute and administer the laws of the Republic of Namibia execute and administer the laws of the Republic of Namibia that I will protect the independence that I will protect the independence, sovereignty, sovereignty, territorial integrity, territorial integrity, and the material and spiritual resources of the Republic of Namibia. And the material and spiritual resources of the Republic of Namibia. That I will not diverge directly or indirectly. That I will not diverge directly or indirectly. Any matters brought before the cabinet. 
any matters brought before the cabinet and entrusted to me under secrecy entrusted and me under secrecy and that i will endeavor to the best of my ability and that i will endeavor to the best of my ability to ensure justice for all the inhabitants of the republic of namibia to ensure justice for all the inhabitants of the republic of namibia to deputize to deputize assist and advise the president assist and advise the president and to perform the duties of my office and the functions entrusted to me by the president and to perform the duties of my office and the function entrusted to me by the president conscientiously conscientiously and to the best of my ability and to the best of my ability please raise your right hand and say so help me god so help me god please come and sign privilege to invite Her Excellency Tetumbo Nantin Dato, Vice President of the Republic of Namibia, to make a short statement. Your Excellency, Comrade Dr. Nangolo Mbumba, President of the Republic of Namibia, Right Honorable Sarah Kuongero Madira, Prime Minister, Your Excellency Ifike Punyepohamba, Second President of the Republic of Namibia, Chief Justice, my I sincerely, Your Excellency, ask to stand on the protocol established and to recognize fellow Namibians. It's an honor and with a sense of responsibility that I have accepted the appointment to serve in the office of the Vice President. I would like to thank Your Excellency Dr. Nangolo Mbumba for the trust and the confidence that you have on me to work with you as we execute our national responsibility as entrenched in our constitution. I have just read the oath of office and I will not add much simply to assure the people of Namibia that I will do my best or to the best of my ability to execute 
those responsibilities as clearly stipulated in the oath of office. Also, in my letter of appointment that has given me specific assignments that are non-negotiable. Once again, fellow Namibians, this occasion is taking place against the background of a sad situation or environment in which we found ourselves, a loss of our beloved president, and we should hold his legacy by following in his footsteps and to appreciate the work he did for us during and after, during the struggle and after Namibia's independence. Let us put our First Lady, the children, and the entire bereaved family of the Gankop during this difficult time. May his soul rest in eternal life. Thank you very much. Now we will witness the, the handing over of the instruments of power by the Chief Justice to His Excellency the President. It will be the Namibian flag, the national flag that is, as well as the presidential flag and the presidential seal. Chief Justice, Your Excellency the President. I did not recognize my family. I did not even recognize my wife. Madam, come. You have to come. Without her, she could not, I could not have reached here.
Your Excellency Nangolombumba, President of the Republic of Namibia and Madame Bumba, First Lady, Your Excellency Netumbo Nantin Deito, Vice President of the Republic of Namibia, Right Honorable Sara Ugongela Amadila, Prime Minister, Your Excellency, Ifikepunya Pohamba, former President of the Republic of Namibia, Your Lordship, Judge Peter Shivute, Chief Justice, Honorable Cabinet Ministers, Deputy Ministers, Members of Parliament, Honorable Laura McLeod Kashira, this has brought us to the end, ladies and gentlemen, to the short and solemn ceremony for this afternoon. And I would therefore invite you to rise for the singing of the anthems as we close off this ceremony. Uh, that was a uh, recording uh, of the transition uh, in uh, the was uh, the swearing-in of uh, the new president uh, of the Republic of Namibia in the aftermath of the death earlier today of uh, President uh, Haji 
skin job of the Republic of Namibia at the age of 82. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment of uh, today's Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February 4th, 2024. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Welcome back. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And um, right now, I want to move into our concluding segment uh, of our program, and uh, this uh, is going to deal uh, with the situation uh, in Palestine, and this is from uh, the Electronic uh, Intifada, uh, one of the primary sources on uh, the situation in Palestine. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 31st. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 117 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a full show for you today, but first, some of the news we've been publishing on the Electronic Intifada over the past several days. Immediately after the International Court of Justice in The Hague made a much-anticipated interim ruling that orders Israel to halt genocidal acts in Gaza, several of Israel's allies have suspended funding to the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, following allegations that 12 of its employees were involved in the October 7th attacks led by Hamas. My colleague Maureen Murphy writes, quote, the Israeli allegations appear to be based off of confessions made by Palestinian detainees, likely under conditions of torture. Human rights experts warn that suspending aid to UNRWA at present is a violation of the 1948 Genocide Convention. UNRWA is the principal provider of humanitarian assistance and second largest employer in the Gaza Strip where two-thirds of its population of 2.3 million Palestinians are refugees. For more, read Maureen Murphy's post, Israel's Allies Accelerate Genocide by Freezing UNRWA Funds on electronicintifada.net. And we'll have more on the suspension of funds to the UN's Palestine Refugee Agency by Israel's Allies coming up later in, in the program. Meanwhile, in addition to the cutting off of vital funds to UNRWA, hundreds of Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since the International Court of Justice issued its orders last Friday to stop Israel from violating the Genocide Conventions, writes Maureen. The Euromed Human Rights Monitor said that in the first 48 hours following the World Court's ruling, the Israeli army killed 373 Palestinians, 345 of them civilians. 
The head of the World Health Organization said on Tuesday that the agency had delivered essential medical supplies to Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus after being cut off amid heavy fighting. He said once the most important referral hospital in southern Gaza, within a week, Nasser has gone from partially to minimally functional. The UN health chief added that this reflected, quote, the unwarranted and ongoing dismantling of the health system in Gaza. Ghassan Abusita, a British-Palestinian surgeon who was working in Gaza during the first weeks of the genocide, has said that Israel's systematic attacks on hospitals is aimed at making life in Gaza unlivable to force out its population, Maureen Murphy notes. Rami Abdu, the director of Euromed Human Rights Monitor, tweeted on Tuesday about reports of a gruesome discovery in northern Gaza of individuals who were blindfolded, handcuffed, and then executed. Quote, the bodies were found beneath debris and waste at Hamad bin Khalifa school, Many were wrapped in shrouds, and the shrouds were bound by the known Israeli handcuffs. According to our field researchers, the preliminary findings suggest that the school is situated near a cemetery, and these bodies might have been previously stolen by Israeli forces from the nearby graveyard and then buried at the school. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza reported that the number of known fatalities in the Gaza Strip since October 7th has risen to more than 26,750, with more than 65,000 injured. That was all from Maureen Murphy's report from Tuesday, Israel kills hundreds of Palestinians in Gaza after ICJ ruling on electronicintifada.net. Palestinians are contracting typhoid and hepatitis A after drinking contaminated water. Finding clean and safe drinking water has become nearly impossible, writes Khaloud Saleman and Salman Yassin from Gaza. Quote, the desalination plants are closed entirely or operating at extremely limited capacity due to a lack of electricity and fuel. Israel has also destroyed much of Gaza's sanitation and water infrastructure or deliberately cut off the piping in of water, the reporters write. Most of the nearly 2 million people who have been displaced in Gaza are now in the south. The lack of clean drinking water there is especially acute. For more on this story, read Dying of Thirst by Khaloud Suleiman and Salma Yassin from Gaza. And finally, in the occupied West Bank, my colleague Tamara Nassar writes that an Israeli death squad raided the Ibn Sina hospital in Jenin on Tuesday, extrajudicially assassinating three young Palestinian men. Quote, surveillance footage shows about a dozen Israeli special Ibn Sina hospital in the northern occupied West Bank city of Jenin on Tuesday. They were dressed as Palestinian doctors, nurses, and civilian women, and were armed with rifles as they moved through the corridors, Tamara reports. One Israeli soldier pushed a patient in a wheelchair, quote, in order to gain access to the hospital's third floor, while another carried a baby bag containing weapons, stated the Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitor. There on the third floor, the Israeli forces entered the room of injured patient Basil Ghazawi, 18 years old, where he was with his 23-year-old brother, Mohammed Ghazawi, as well as their friend, Mohammed Jalamne, who was 27. Using silencer-fitted guns, the Israeli soldiers assassinated all three men and left the hospital. The operation lasted about 10 minutes. 
Basil Ghazawi, who recently turned 18 years old, was receiving treatment after becoming partially paralyzed from an injury in October when Israeli forces drone-bombed an area of Jenin in an attack that killed three children. Basil's 23-year-old brother Mohammed was one of the founders of the Jenin Brigade, a resistance group that formed in the Jenin refugee camp and is associated with the Quds Brigades, the military wing of the Islamic Jihad resistance group. Their friend Mohammed Jalamne was a member of Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of the Palestinian resistance group Hamas. The Israeli military said this, has been, this had been a joint operation with the domestic spying and torture agency Shin Beit. Euromed Human Rights Monitor described the killings as an extrajudicial execution, as did the United Nations Human Rights Office. For much more on this story, read Tamara Nassar's piece, Israeli Death Squad Executes Three Palestinians in Hospital on electronicintifada.net. And those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head to electronicintifada.net for much more. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada livestream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. On the same day that the International Court of Justice delivered its preliminary orders last Friday, a federal court in Oakland, California, heard arguments in the case of Defense for Children International Palestine versus Biden. The lawsuit was brought by DCIP along with the Center for Constitutional Rights and Al-Haq together with Palestinians in Gaza and the U.S. They filed the lawsuit in November against President Biden Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for the failure by those officials to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide against them, their families, and the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. Attorneys asked the court to immediately order the United States to cease military support for Israel's unfolding genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and opposed the government's efforts to have the case dismissed. According to the Center for Constitutional Rights, one plaintiff testified from Gaza, one from Ramallah, and five plaintiffs provided live testimony in court of the death, displacement, and destruction their families and communities have faced since Israel began its campaign of retaliation for the October 7th Hamas attacks. In just one example, approximately 60 members of Ahmed Abu Fool's extended family have been killed since the complaint was filed in November underscoring the need for the court to issue an immediate injunction. Ahmed, of course, is the lawyer with Al-Haq and has been on this live stream several times before. Joining us now to talk about the federal case is one of the plaintiffs, our friend Leila Haddad. Leila is a Palestinian journalist, writer, public speaker, gardener, foodie, and mom. She's the author of the books Gaza Mom and Gaza Kitchen, and she co-edited Gaza Unsilenced with Rifat Alarir. Leila, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Hi, Leila. It's so good to see you. Likewise, it's it's a privilege to be here. I was um, was getting a little, you know, wondering why why Adi hasn't had me on yet, but <laughs> better late than never. Um, before we get into the federal case, though. So, uh, Tell us about your family in Gaza right now. Are you even able to get in touch with them? Where where are they? What do you know so far? It's, you know, I just, right as you were speaking, I was trying to see if I could get any updates from my, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice, as you can see, from days of 
of um, of you know testifying and so on. Um, my cousins in Rafah in the south of Gaza are the ones that I've been in communication with, but we've lost contact for the past few days, which you know is always unnerving because um, I know things are really bad if I don't hear from them in particular. But I also have an extended number of family members in the city that haven't left since the beginning, um, as well as within central Gaza. And I have uh, my aunt and my cousins in um, Mawasi of Khan Yunus. So the ones in the city uh, are the ones that are probably in the most precarious situation. Um, one of my cousins and her husband and her two children are right in front of the uh, Nasr Hospital in Gaza City and were initially completely besieged by Israeli tanks and sort of had a small reprieve. And then in the past few days, um, you might have heard that there was another evacuation order for that entire area of Gaza, but I don't believe they left. So I just haven't been able to hear from them. I heard finally from my cousin uh, in Gaza City, who was a witness to the uh, murder of my aunt at the, uh, by Israeli forces and uh, his brothers and my cousin's wife as well. This was on November the 2nd, and I just hadn't heard from him since. And he uh, was explaining to me how he was basically uh, trying to approximate, find any kind of safety or shelter or fleeing from one neighborhood to another within the city. He initially was in the Shifa compound, and then uh, a few days ago told me that that was uh, no longer safe and, and uh, very difficult for his children. He moved to another area in Rimal and then another third area because the Rimal area um, was being hit uh, yesterday and the day before. Uh, so it's, I mean, I don't even know what to say anymore. Um, I, I, feel, I feel awful talking to them. And if it's any consolation, they say to me, tell everyone that you speak to to keep speaking out and keep writing and keep protesting and keep suing and keep, you know, whatever it is that's in your capacity to do, they said keep doing it because it's important to us and it, and it reminds us and it makes us feel that we are not alone, that we are heard and we are seen um, and we, you know, we, we have those speaking out on our behalf. Uh, I could, you know, speak in more detail about, about what my cousin relates to me, but uh, um, yeah. as well. That, that's such an important message, Leila. It's the same message that I get from everyone we're in contact with in Gaza, and it's one I think that everyone uh, who's watching today or who's going to be watching this uh, live stream later on should and do take to heart that we have to keep raising our voices. And that's, that's the most important thing we can do for all our friends and colleagues and loved ones uh, in, in Gaza. And we certainly pray for your family and everyone in Gaza to be safe and for this horror to end uh, very quickly, which is what you and the other plaintiffs in this um, uh, federal court case against President Biden and other top U.S. officials are trying to achieve. Um, so tell us about what happened in court last Friday. That was the same day that the World Court issued its uh, preliminary uh, measures in South Africa's case against Israel over this genocide. Uh, your case was being heard the same day. Tell us about how you joined the case as a plaintiff and what happened in federal court and, and what did it feel like to, mm -hmm. to be there? Uh, I'll start. I'll start in the middle. 
it, I joined the case because I felt it was, first of all, my duty that I was obligated to do everything in my power uh, where I'm able to put an end to this genocide against my family and against my people. Uh, and I will exercise all tools at my disposal, whether that's protesting or uh, meeting with my senator, writing letters, mobilizing locally, and going to court at using the legal measures as well. Uh, as an American taxpayer, as a Palestinian from Gaza, uh, I think it's important that I do that. I know that it is also painful and it is difficult, as you probably saw in that testimony, um, but it is also urgent and it is necessary. It is absolutely vital. And um, my mandate is my family and my people there. And as long as this is something that they feel um, is relevant and important and significant, I, I will keep doing that um, until my dying breath. And, um, and so that was why I joined it uh, in terms of, um, and of course, you know, the idea being of the, behind the lawsuit um, is to ask the court to issue an injunction to, uh, to uh, put an end to furthering this genocide, to, to put an end to sending any more, to bar the U.S. government from sending any more arms and any more financial, political, uh, diplomatic support uh, to Israel, suing them, of course, uh, for preventing, uh, for failing, rather, to prevent an ongoing uh, genocide, which they are obligated to do. Uh, so those were the reasons why, in terms of what uh, it was, it felt like, and, and maybe I'll proceed that by saying we, frankly, didn't even think we would get this far. So um, I just want to say it was a, an incredible victory that that we, the, this was not dismissed, that the court not only did not dismiss it, but agreed to an in-person live testimony. And um, and I'll talk a little bit more about, about what happened in the court, but just you know, we were all a little apprehensive, a little nervous. We weren't sure what to expect. And, and we went in there, and for four and a half hours, the judge heard testimony after testimony from different Palestinians, both in the United States and in Gaza, as well as from an expert witness in genocide studies, uh, about how this genocide has impacted us, uh, extensive testimony discussing the Nakba for the first time, I dare say, in history in a U.S. court, not only as it pertained to Palestinians in 1948, but the extension of that being the ongoing genocide in Gaza and sort of the modern day Nakba. The first time, I believe, that uh, a court ever heard any of this in the United States. And it was something incredibly, as painful as it was, incredibly powerful about that moment or, or moments, I should say, of those four hours. And we really came out feeling feeling empowered, inspired, um, hopeful. Uh, I, there's no really other other way to describe it. It was it was incredibly important and historic, and and very significantly, every single objection that was attempted by the defendants, by the U.S. government and their lawyers, was overruled by the judge. They were particularly, yeah, they were particularly. Um, you know, incest by the scholar uh, in, of genocide studies, um, Barry um, Trachtenberg, Dr. Barry Trachtenberg at the end. And, and you might have seen the reel of that where literally they're saying objection overruled, objection overruled, everything from his qualifications to his CV to why, to the fact that he, you know, didn't have a, a degree in foreign policy to which he quipped, I didn't realize that was a degree. And of course, the court kind of like burst out into laughter. 
Um, and so they were frustrated. The, the defendants were very frustrated and, and sort of, you know, muttered at one point. Um, but again, it was really remarkable also that the judge preceded all of this by issuing some <clears throat> prepared remarks, which he didn't have to do. That kind of set the tone for the entire day. Um, and also listened very carefully, gave us, allotted us the maximum amount of time that we each needed for our testimonies, um, and ended with a summary saying essentially that this was the most important case of his career that he wanted to deliberate on and take very seriously and, and letting us know that we had been seen and we had been heard, which might seem trivial, but for those of us who, who have endured and who have seen our families endure, um, the horrors of this ongoing genocide, just being able to hear such words was more than we have heard or seen by our own administration in, in the entire three months. You know, instead, uh, our family's deaths, you know, have been raised into question, right? Um, we've been dehumanized. Um, uh, the genocide continues despite overwhelming evidence uh, uh, demonstrating uh, the deliberateness of, of, of the, and the nature and the intent right, um, of this genocide and Biden himself acknowledging that many of these bombings have been in, indiscriminate. Yeah. Leila, just, uh, you know, one thing listening to you, I'm remembering how emotional I felt and many other people felt when we listened to South Africa present its case at the International Court of Justice and that feeling of being heard for the first time. I mean, it, it sounds trivial, but when you actually experience it, it's very powerful. You get this rush of emotion, of validation that we never feel as Palestinians or, or rarely feel. And just to remind viewers that in, I hadn't seen that reel you mentioned, but uh, in general, uh, in, in fact, it yeah, was but I am you. Yeah, no, I encourage everyone. to yeah, see it. But just just to say that the mm -hmm. United States federal courts do not allow uh, cameras. People are used to seeing trials and hearings in U.S. state courts, but we don't have cameras in federal courts, which is why it's so important for you to be here and tell us what happened in court. Otherwise, none of us who weren't there would know about it. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and in fact, the judge, um, in addition to allowing the live testimony, allowed um, 1,000 permits, I think, for um, people to view it um, live streamed on Zoom, um, which was also which was also incredible. But but yes, I agree with everything you said. It was because it was I don't overshadowed is maybe the wrong word, but you know by the ICJ ruling and and by everything that was happening with Onurwa. Um, I don't think unless you're in the Bay Area, people got a sense or a real appreciation for how historic and how incredible um, that day and those moments, uh, those moments were for Palestinians in their own words, in their own voice for the first time to be narrating their own experience in a federal court about mm -hmm. uh, what the United States um, is complicit in doing. <clears throat> Leila, uh, was there any indication that um, your case uh, was was bolstered by the decision of the ICJ earlier in the day? Was there any um, discussion within the, the, the testimonies that were given um, about, you know, the, the, the obligation now that the Biden administration had, I mean, they had before, but, but especially, you know, emboldened by the ICJ's uh, uh, provisional measures? Yes. So, in fact, the 
the lawyers, God bless them, I wish one of them was on with us right now, got up at the crack of dawn at 3 or 4 a.m. Pacific time to listen to the, um, the, the ruling and, um, and to deliver the documents to the judge. And so he was well aware of that ruling um, prior to our own testimonies and hearings. And, um, and I do believe that that will likely have an impact on his decision. Much of this, of course, will and may come down to, um, uh, you know, matters of whether or not this is his jurisdiction. Um, and that's what the defense was trying to argue. But it nevertheless is a huge, regardless of the outcome, huge political victory for the Palestinians um, in terms of being heard and seen, in terms of putting, continuing to put pressure on the administration. Yeah. And in, in terms also um, of, you know, the, the, the judge having heard that if he is not, and he, he kept saying, tell me, I want to hear from you, from the lawyers, tell me what to do. It was almost like he was saying, I, I need help. I need you to help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what is it in my power to do? And, um, and they told him that this would be the last place that, the, um, that we as plaintiffs could seek um, recourse, legal recourse. Um, and I think he really took that to heart or, or you know, so that's our hope at least. Um, but again, regardless, we still feel just having gotten this far is really a huge, a huge victory. Yeah. Um, and it was an incredible moment um, as far as the Palestinian struggle um, and, and the Palestinian discourse in the United States goes. And it, it really is a credit to the lawyers and all the plaintiffs, uh, which include Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinian Americans who are directly affected, who have family in Gaza. And we did have someone uh, from the Center for Constitutional Rights on right when this lawsuit was filed. And we definitely should have a lawyer back uh, as this case proceeds to kind of uh, get into some of the in and outs. But uh, one of the things I understand about the case uh, is that the Genocide Convention, the International Genocide Convention, is incorporated into United States law because the United States ratified it and President Ronald Reagan signed it. And so the obligations on President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin are legally binding. And you are going to court in order to enforce their obligations under United States law and international law. And I think it's so hard for us to ever feel any hope because, and we've said this in the past few weeks as we've discussed the ICJ case and other attempts at justice, you know, we get to a certain point and the door gets slammed in our face. They always find a way to shut it down. And so we are very cautious. We're like people who've who've touched the hot stove and who are now very careful uh, about it. So um, I think it's just to remind ourselves that we, we go into this with great apprehension, but to hear you, Leila, just does give me hope and and it's it's something we have to continue to to push we have to use every tool in our uh in our reach to try to bring justice for our uh, friends family and people in gaza and in palestine Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean we we don't have a choice 
Um, and it was just, as you said, you know, we're, we're constantly having as Palestinians to put on our different hats, you know, um, but it was, it was emotional and painful um, to, for myself and to hear the doctor from, from Gaza testify, he started us off, and to say, I have nothing left but my breath. Israel, with the United States' help, has taken it all away. Um, and just those words stick out in my mind. Sorry, now I'm going to get all teary-eyed again. So I see I can hold it together. Um, that we are doing this, you know, our taxes, our government, and that was really important to demonstrate. Um, what I had said was, you know, it's my tax dollars and my government that are killing my family, and President Biden can put an end to this with one phone call. But he is deliberately choosing not to, and in fact is doing quite the opposite and bypassing Congress and sending more arms and providing, you know, financial and political and diplomatic cover and uh, dehumanizing Palestinians and denying our deaths. And, and then what? And I really do feel that the judge took this to heart. The, the testimonies ended, as I said, with Dr. Trachtenberg's testimony in which he said, this is a textbook case of genocide. This is what I have studied for me and other experts our entire lives to prevent something like this from happening, to be able to come and testify and say, this should not be happening, not to theorize about it or to reflectively look back and say it shouldn't have happened. And that, that was incredibly powerful to, to begin and to end with those two testimonies, interspersed, of course, with our own testimonies about what our families are enduring and continue to endure um, in Gaza. Um, what is the timeline for the judgment? Is there any indication um, about you know when when the judge will make his decision? And then you know if if he finds that uh, that the Biden administration are, are guilty um, of the accusations that that are laid out in this case, what happens next? So that I don't know, not being the lawyer, but I do know that he said he wanted to take his time, that he could have easily dismissed it before mm. he could have even said there's no hearing and he didn't do that. Um, and then he could have even heard us just for the sake of hearing us and then said dismissed. And he also didn't do that. Um, he did say this was the most important case of his career and that he was taking the responsibility very seriously with the understanding that it had um, the ability to, you know, save lives, to, to, potentially set a legal precedent um, to uh, provide reprieve, obviously, for, for millions of people. Um, and that, as I said, there was no other place where we could go as plaintiffs um, to argue our case. So he said he wanted to take his time to deliberate um, and think about it and uh, look into all the jurisdictional issues and so on. So I'm really not sure in terms of the, the timeline. I know that one of the lawyers, Diala Jamez, had said it could be days, it could be weeks. Um, so something in, in the range of that um, in terms of, of course, what the potential outcomes could be. He could decide that this was um, indeed not within his jurisdictional authority powers um, to to uh, speak to the executive uh, branch or tell the executive what to do. He could decide that um, he wants to issue an injunction telling them that they uh, need to cease you know, sending any further weapons, for example, um, so there's a range of things that he could potentially uh, potentially do. Hmm. And, and regardless, sorry, sorry I should, one more thing, that regardless, again, this is on the record now, right? This right. is in, in the court, in the federal court record online. 
um, that President Biden and Secretary of State uh, Blinken, I don't know why I kept saying Clinton in my live videos, <laughs> maybe her too, but... Um, um, <laughs> Definitely uh, implicated. Yeah. yeah, I was listening to one of the things I recorded later and I kept saying Clinton, Clinton, but anyway, um, um, that they are now, it is on the record that they have been accused um, of, of complicity and genocide. That's that's very important. We'll we'll be watching it. I believe that this you know this is still a pre preliminary phase of yes. the case, uh, and what we hope is that the judge will act quickly and decisively and issue an injunction, which could include, as you mentioned, ordering the administration to stop supplying the weapons which are being used for the genocide. I did see one question in the comments. People were asking if there is a similar lawsuit in Canada. And mm -hmm. I believe the answer to that is yes, uh, that there is either one uh, that has been filed or is being filed. I don't have the information at my fingertips, but that is something perhaps we can come back to uh, in a future show. I know that there's some local maybe civil lawsuits, if I'm not mistaken, not federal ones, though. Like, so there's one in Chicago, I know, um, that is ongoing, but I'm not sure of the difference. I believe this is the only federal one in the United States. Right. <laughs> and, and, and maybe if anyone knows more about the case in Canada, we'll certainly try to get that information for a future show. Yeah. Uh, finally, Leila, um, you know, uh, how are you doing personally with all of this? Um, you know, you're a mom, you have children, uh, you are in the belly of the beast, you know, very close to DC, um, and, and you're trying to, uh, you know, figure out how, how to, how to care for your family, uh, 10,000 miles away. What, how are you doing? I, you know, that's the question of the hour, right? How are we all doing? Uh, uh, I mean, we're doing as well as can be expected, I guess, but it's not a question. I mean, what I just keep saying is we don't have the luxury to grieve or reflect. Uh, we are not in that position right now, um, at least not speaking for myself personally. Um, all I can do is is turn, is to convert that emotion and that overwhelming feeling of grief and despair into action. And so while I dread being, as you said, here near the belly of the beast, um, it truly and genuinely disgusts me. Um, I also recognize that I, um, I have this burden and this responsibility to do everything I can um, on their behalf and on the behalf of, of others as well who don't, have, um, who don't have that privilege. And so it's been incredibly difficult, and you know it's stressful on the family but again that's kind of trivial compared to what our own families um, are going through and yeah it's difficult to speak to them and i just keep apologizing and saying i don't know what to tell you you know and that's this is why we do what we do that we're literally paying for your suffering you know we're we're bankrolling your suffering um so it's just a heavy you know sorry thing to to live with um but, you know, we're here for a reason, and so we need to use our voices. And it's important to me to keep hearing them say, <clears throat> the last thing they want us to do is to kind of break down and forget about them and feel hopeless or...
stop posting and stop talking and stop writing and um, and just you know feel overwhelmed. Um, that's really the last thing that they need um, and the last thing uh, that I think we should be doing. Um, Leila, if I if I can just say, uh, we all share the feelings that you have, and and yeah. this can be very difficult at times, and the emotions are sometimes really just below the surface, and sometimes we don't want to acknowledge that just for the reason you said that, you know, what we're going through pales in significance to what what our friends and loved ones in Gaza are going through. But it is painful for you. It is painful for all of us. And uh, we have to look after ourselves and each other so that we can be there for them and, and not to minimize the, what we, we too are going through because we need to be strong and we need to be together for them. And we, uh, we, uh, I, I, I am so awe-inspired by what you're doing and the work you've done over the years and we're going to let you go but just say one word to us i have right behind me and you have it behind you too. Yes. <laughs> the, the book that you co-edited with rifat al-arir our dear friend the educator the professor the poet who was assassinated murdered by israel on december 6 and whose loss we feel every day just say a word about your experience with rifat and what you'd like people to know about him Oh gosh, Ali, I don't know if I can. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll just start by saying I think I'm going to preface, you know, what I want to say about Rifat by saying I think one of the most what's made this particular assault so difficult and so different is the the deliberateness and the sort of the brazen nature of it, right, of the public um, um, intent of, of genocide, of the mocking, of the literally intentional, deliberate targeting of everything of value and beauty and meaning in Gaza. You know, seeing my entire neighborhood, I've talked extensively about this, that was not too far from Rifat's home, um, on the second day, just for what, for no reason whatsoever, playgrounds, cafes, you know, the archives, the theater near my house, completely decimated and destroyed and leveled. Um, and then the universities and, and the, you know, the beach promenade. And, and then, of course, Rifat himself. Um, that, to me, has been the most painful part. Um, and... I just, you know, I kept thinking, I, we still have him in all these WhatsApp groups, you know, it's kind of weird. And there was just a sort of a, some kind of ominous feeling hanging over us in all of our conversations. It's almost like he knew he was going to die um, just in the days leading up to his, his assassination. Um, I know he was on, on here as well, um, in which he told me, like, how tired he was and how he had to walk for hours to get water for his family, and how, you know, with um, sort of classic Grafat Wit talking about how he's kind of going crazy in a room with 30 people and uh, children running all over the place and an old man with 100 conspiracy theories that wasn't making matters any better. Um, and he said, Leila, we're just 
just so tired. You know, I've never been tired, but I'm tired and kind of surviving on dates. And he went to get some of the olive oil that he had pressed for, from that from the last year. Um, sent me a picture that I sent around saying, you know, you think we could start this campaign? We're raising his hand like this. Um, you know, remembering the child that had been killed with a piece of bread in her hand. But, it, you know, we, yes, you, we worked together closely over the years. I hosted him here, as you did in Chicago. I visited him in Gaza, which was one of the most beautiful um, memories I have. Um, he was so enthusiastic. His students were so enthusiastic. There was something incredibly powerful about that experience, too, being able to reunite, you know, in Gaza, in our own home, on his turf, uh, speaking to the students um, about the importance um, and the technique of how to share and tell your stories, to narrate your own experience. That's what that, the whole talk and the sort of conversation was about. Um, and then me and him and Nuseiba um, went to the beach and she made maftul and we, we ate together. And that was one of the last pictures that we have together on the beach of Gaza. So, you know, I just feel at peace knowing he did everything in his power, as we should as well. Um, to speak truth to power and to, you know, till his dying moment, right? Um, and I think we, that's, we take a lesson from that. Um, and we honor his memory by continuing his work, continuing his legacy, I think. We love Haddad. Um, we appreciate you and we love you. And um, thank you so much for, for, for being who you are and continuing to do the work that you've been doing for so long, especially over the last four months um, with so much pain and anger and rage and grief and everything and loss um, and worry and frustration and all the, all the things together in one. We'd love to have you back on. Um, and uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me again. And again, I apologize. I did not mean No, please. No, no, no. no. Quite fast, no but... We don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no apologies. Please. Oh, okay. Thank, Thank you, you Leila. And, I, and I'm sorry. I apologize. Please forgive me for us taking so long to have you. It was overdue. <laughs> but I hope, you will, I, hope, for. I hope you will. I hope you will. Like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But I, I hope you will come back soon. Anytime. I'm more than happy. Thank you. Leila Haddad is a plaintiff in the federal lawsuit against Biden at all. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we will, of course, continue updating on that lawsuit as well. Um, but yeah, you're also the co-editor with Rishat of Gaza Unsilenced there in the background. You're also a, the author of The Gaza Kitchen and Gaza Mom. Leila, thank you so much again. And uh, we'll see you thank soon. You. Thank you all. Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, um, coming up uh, in in, uh, in in our after this next segment, we'll have uh, Chris Gunnis, uh, formerly the head of the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees. But first, Ali, you have an update um, on the. It's, it's so hard to segue. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But but you do have an update on. The situation, uh, the the uh, mass, the so-called mass rape investigation published by the New York Times in December. We wanted to, re we didn't want to revisit this, but we have to. Um, tell us about what's uh, what's uh, the updates here. 
Yeah, first to remind our viewers, uh, months ago, the New York Times published an article with the headline, Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. And it was supposedly the result of a two-month-long investigation led by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jeffrey Gettleman. Uh, the Times claimed to present evidence that Hamas fighters raped Israeli women on October 7th and that, quote, the attacks against women were not isolated events, but part of a broader pattern of gender-based violence. But as we showed on our January 3rd live stream, the Times' so-called investigation was deeply flawed, and I would go as far as to say fraudulent. People can watch that segment on our YouTube channel. Yeah, and we can link to that. Um, but I know that uh, some staffers inside the New York Times uh, itself have reached similar conclusions to the one that we and other independent outlets have reached. Is that right? That's right. On January 28th, The Intercept revealed that The Times pulled a high-profile episode of its podcast, The Daily, that was based on uh, Gettleman's mass rapes article. According to The Intercept, the decision not to air the episode was taken, quote, amid a furious internal debate about the strength of the paper's original reporting on the subject. And I want to know that The Daily is more than just an ordinary podcast. It is broadcast every weekday on public radio stations around the United States. So millions of people hear it. It's very influential. According to The Intercept, the episode was supposed to air on January 9th, but as criticism of Gettleman's reporting grew internally and externally, The Daily shelved the original script and put a hold on the episode. Now, they then wrote a new script, one that was, according to The Intercept, allow, that allowed for uncertainty and asked open-ended questions that were absent from the original article. In other words, The Daily was going to cast doubt on The Times' own reporting. But even that new script uh, remains the subject of significant controversy within The Times newsroom and has yet to air. According to The Intercept, some New York Times staffers fear another caliphate-level journalistic debacle. Right, and uh, remind our viewers what that is. Right. Caliphate was a sensational multi-part podcast by New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki. It was released in 2018. It purported to be the story of a young Canadian Muslim who was radicalized and went on to Syria to join ISIS and commit a number of gruesome atrocities that were described in detail in the podcast. But the, ma the man turned out to be a total fraud. He made everything up. And the New York Times ignored many of the red flags that his story was fake. The Times ended up retracting the podcast, and it was obviously a huge embarrassment. This malpractice is not harmless. The podcast undoubtedly fed uh, anti-Muslim fear-mongering in both Canada and the U.S. by boosting the notion that young Muslims in these countries present a grave danger. And I would say that the New York Times' reporting of Israeli atrocity propaganda since October 7, such as the claims of mass rape, is also extremely harmful because it provides Israel with a justification for and distraction from its genocidal crimes against Palestinians in Gaza. And it really seems to me that the New York Times as an institution has not learned the lessons from the caliphate debacle, although it appears that at least some of its staff have 
which is why they are now raising the alarm over the Gettleman article. Have there been any uh, New York Times editors who have responded to this controversy over the mass rapes article? Is anyone taking this seriously from inside? One New York Times staffer told The Intercept, quote, there seems to be no self-awareness at the top. The staffer added that Gettleman's story, quote, deserved more fact-checking and much more reporting, all basic standards applied to countless other stories, end quote. But instead of assigning editors to review Gettleman's work with some objectivity, it appears The Times has allowed him to investigate himself. Sources, yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, Sources at the Times told The Intercept that Gettleman was assigned to write a follow-up story and gather evidence to support his original claims that were in the story back in December. Right. Amazing. Um, and, and that article that Gettleman did uh, investigating himself has now been published. Does it resolve any of the problems with his original quote-unquote report? Did he come up with any new evidence? Is there anything now to back up the the, the spurious claims that have been debunked? Yeah, it was published on January 29th. And while it does contain new unverified claims and a lot of spin and evasion, there is nothing in it that you could call new evidence. Mm-hmm. Gettleman really tries to skirt around or simply ignores the key problems with his reporting that we and others have pointed out. Right. Convenient. Um, What are some of those key problems? Well, first, there is the issue of Gal Abdush. She is an Israeli woman who was killed on October 7th. In his original article, Gettleman portrays her as the central victim of this so-called pattern of rape allegedly carried out by Hamas. But several members of Gal Abdush's family pushed back very strongly against Gettleman's claims. They say that there is no proof that Gal Abdush was raped, and they said that the Times manipulated them. They had no idea that the story Gettleman was working on was going to claim that Abdush uh, was raped. Gettleman provides absolutely no new evidence on this and actually has to acknowledge that, quote, family members have denied or cast doubt on the claims that she was raped. He then asserts that critics have used the comments of Gal Abdush's family, quote, to assert falsely that the family had renounced the article, end quote. But that is not false. Family members did renounce the claims in Gettleman's article, and Gettleman has come up with no new evidence to back them up. And Gal Abdush's mother said she only learned of the claim that her daughter had been sexually assaulted from the, from the New York Times article itself. Atrocious. Um, in our previous segment on this, you pointed out how the four supposed eyewitnesses uh, to the alleged rapes each lacked credibility. Uh, you pointed out that their stories were inherently unlikely or even impossible, that there was a total lack of corroboration including bodies and other physical and forensic evidence, um, or because the supposed eyewitnesses changed their stories over time. Um, Does Gettleman address any of that in this new piece? He does address it, but only in a way that raises even more questions about his shoddy reporting, fraudulent reporting, I would say. For example, there's the case of Sapir, a woman who supposedly saw Hamas fighters gang rape and murder five women, 
then cut off the breast of one of them and start tossing it around like a ball. She also claimed she saw Hamas fighters prancing around with severed heads of, of three women lifted up over their heads. As we pointed out previously, her incredible atrocity tale came with no corroboration. Where were the severed heads? Where were the headless bodies? Where was all the blood and DNA? All this horror could not have happened while leaving no trace behind. Now, Gettleman makes this claim, citing Israeli authorities. I quote, the police also said they found Sapir's bag where she said she had been hiding and women's clothing near where she said the rapes occurred. And three severed heads were found farther away near the bodies of assailants in military fatigues, Israeli officials said, without providing more detail, end quote. None of these details were in his original story, and it all sounds very convenient. I've been following this issue very closely, and this is the first time in almost four months that we hear it claimed that this sort of physical evidence exists. But why didn't Gettleman insist on seeing crime scene photos or any other physical evidence? Again, there's nothing new here except more claims and assertions from the authorities of the same regime that is perpetrating genocide in Gaza, claims that neither we nor Gettleman can verify, but which Gettleman and the New York Times are happy to regurgitate, apparently without a, a shred of skepticism. And then there's the second and the only other eyewitness to the same alleged incident, a man called Yura Carroll. As we po pointed out, in an earlier account, Carroll told Israeli media he did not see the rape, but only that Sapir had told him about it. But in Gettleman's original article, Carroll is quoted as saying he saw these events with his own eyes. In the new article, Gettleman does not challenge Carroll with his previous contradictory statements, but simply allows him to reassert his claims. Again, absolutely nothing new. I should point out that neither Sapir nor Carroll were named in the earlier account in Haaretz where the second witness says he did not see the rape, but there's enough similarity that we can conclude with confidence that this is the same alleged uh, incident. Uh, there was another supposed eyewitness to a separate alleged rape, a man called Roz Cohen. Um, and last time we talked about this, you pointed out how Cohen's story had changed repeatedly since October 7th. Does Gettleman address that? If so, how does he address it? Yeah, that's right. We and other outlets have pointed out how Cohen's accounts have, have kept changing over time, including how in, in his initial statements about October 7th, Cohen made no mention of rape. And now this is the laughable excuse that Gettleman comes up with to cover up for Cohen's shifting narratives. Gettleman writes, quote, asked this month why he had not mentioned rape at first, Mr. Cohen cited the stress of his experience and said in a text message that he had not realized then that he was one of the few surviving witnesses. He declined to be interviewed again, saying he was working to recover from the trauma he suffered, end quote. And Gettleman also tries to appeal to authority to cover up for Cohen's evasions and lies. He quotes the person he describes as a Ukrainian lawyer specializing in international law, including crimes against women. And this lawyer says that a variation in the testimony given by the eyewitness, quote, does not necessarily invalidate the witness's experience. 
and she also puts Cohen's shifting story down to trauma. Uh, isn't that convenient? <laughs> I guess it's a, a case of uh, what they say uh, online, trust me, bro. Yeah. And also notice that Gettleman claims that Cohen was, quote, one of the few surviving witnesses, end quote. It's always important to remind ourselves that Israeli authorities and Gettleman and lots of other media have been claiming all along that there was a pattern of rapes, a deliberate mass campaign of sexual violence as a weapon of war. And yet in his new article, Gettleman has not come up with any other examples in addition to the alleged cases he reported and which are simply not credible. There should be tons of witnesses and tons of evidence, including forensics and video, but there just isn't. Um, there is one more supposed eyewitness who is with Raz Cohen, a fashion designer named Shoam Greta. Greta claims he saw the same assault as Cohen, but there's no, nothing to corroborate it. Gettleman does not add anything new about Goethe, just repetition of what he claimed in the earlier article. But it's notable that Goethe has been a publicity seeker from the start. In the last few weeks, he's been deployed in Gaza with the Israeli army, and he posted this photo on Facebook where he actually advertises his collection, uh, his fashion collection called Gutos, on the wall of a house in Gaza. You can see that uh, photo here. I don't know what to say about that, um, other than absolutely despicable. Um, the Ali, the last time you talked about uh, how Gettleman... Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion from uh, Electronic uh, Intifada uh, from uh, last week, uh, four days ago. Uh, and that's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Sunday, February 4th, uh, 2024. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to have access to this program uh, for uh, Sunday, February 4, 2024, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, legendary uh, pianist Hayter Brooks uh, from the album entitled Femme Fatale. Uh, released in 1957. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
I can hear it in your sight. Feel your touch and realize the thrill is gone. The nights are cold. For love is old. Love was grand and love was new. Birds were singing. Skies were blue. Now it don't appeal to you. The thrill is gone. This is the end. So hard reaching. Say that we'll never part. 
boy on my mind The one who is my idea Maybe he's a dream And yet he might be Just around the corner waiting for me Will I recognize a light in his eyes That no other eyes dream Although he may be I trust in fate and so I wait for my eyes.